as we continue through this journey in the life of David, we come to this highly disturbing passage of Scripture. And as I mentioned last week, this is the passage of Scripture that addresses the rape of Tamar by David's son Amnon. Also sent this out in an email as uh, just particularly being sensitive to the various family needs and parental discretion as to whether or not their kids should be here for this. And, um, but I, let me suggest to you that if, if your children are old enough to understand what I'm going to be saying, let me suggest to you that your children probably need to not only hear what I'm saying, but also need to understand what I'm about to say. Let us pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we need your spirit to open up your word to us, for your word to change us, for your word to challenge us, for your word to instruct us. Father, I thank you for the raw honesty that your word brings, that your word is not in denial over the extent of evil or the extent of evil even in, even in your own people. And Lord, it is for that evil that Jesus came to bring redemption. So Lord, I pray that you would give us an insight this morning into the brokenness and the evil that's in this world, so that we as your people would be your lights and respond to it for the furtherance of your name and for the protection of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, makes this statement. He says, it is actually reported, can you believe it? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. You know, when I first read that and I, I comprehended what that meant, I think I was probably in high school, you know, and I understood what was happening in the church in Corinth, how there was this incestuous relationship that was going on and the church was somehow allowing it and not addressing it. And I read through that, and the thought went through my mind, thank the Lord that I am not in the church of Corinth. You know, thank the Lord that that was such a long time ago. And then I hear in the news, you know, more recently, over the last couple of years, the stories of the abuse within the Roman Catholic Church. I have the thought, thank the Lord that I'm not in the Catholic Church. And you hear the story of Sovereign Grace Ministry and the multiple cases of child abuse that occurred in their ministry, the, the cover-up by the leadership it's in the Reformed community, say, thank the Lord that I'm not a part of Sovereign Grace. And then you hear the story more recently of Bob Jones University and the, the, the large-scale cover-up that was going on there for many years of sexual abuse at Bob Jones University, and the thought, thank the Lord, I'm not at Bob Jones University. And then about two years ago, a friend of mine was, uh, actually probably three years ago now, a friend of mine was trying to write a child protection policy for his church, and he contacted another church and asked them what their child protection policy was, and they didn't have one. So he contacted another church, and they didn't have one either. And so he contacted multiple churches and found out that none of them had them. And so this led him to writing a child protection policy, and he subsequently wrote an overture, he's a pastor in the PCA, wrote an overture to the G General Assembly, which the General Assembly, our denomination as a whole, adopted two years ago called Faithful Protection, which was 
to, that the General Assembly of the denomination would encourage churches to uh, institute child protection policies and review their child protection policies, and they gave several resources to help doing this that my friend Mike Sloan wrote. And I'm just, to be completely forthright, much of what I'm sharing from you is taken directly from Mike's writing. And so he wrote that because he felt it was necessary to do, necessary for the church to protect himself against, to protect itself, to protect the young ones in our midst. And he said what he did not expect was that nearly every week for the next two years, another church would contact him from within our own denomination and say to him and tell him the story about sexual abuse that occurred within the walls of the PCA church and the cover-up that occurred by the leadership and how they were handling it, and whether or not they should do anything. And he said, rarely a week went by that I did not get a call from another one of our churches about child sexual abuse within the walls of our church and gross and abhorrent cover-up occurring in the midst of that. And suddenly, it became all too real that this is not an issue that is out there. Thank God I'm not a part of them, but dear God, help us. And so I come to this passage here this morning with that as the context. And we come to 2 Samuel chapter 13, which is a passage of Scripture that is bluntly and blatantly honest about the nature of abuse, how abuse, how abuse occurs. And I believe that God has given it to us so that we would not only understand the nature of abuse and the nature of abusers, but so that we would take action to protect God's children and all children and all individuals as best we are able. So I'm going to share with you 13 principles that are very obvious from this passage this morning. The first one is this. So when it comes to abuse, abusers are usually known. They are typically not strangers. They are usually known and they are frequently well-respected members of society. The chapter begins, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, Loved her. Amnon, let's introduce ourselves to these characters. We haven't seen them yet in our series on David. Amnon was the firstborn of David. He was the presumptive crown prince over Israel. Amnon was someone who was well-known throughout society. He was well-known to his sister Tamar. He was not a stranger, but a distinguished brother. Widely known, widely regarded, highly distinguished. Amnon was someone who was privileged. He was positioned. And he was powerful. Anna Salter, in her book on child molesters and child predators, shares the story from a person that she interviewed. The person states this, I want to describe a child molester I know very well. This man was raised by devout Christian parents. And as a child, he rarely missed church. Even after he became an adult, he was, a faithful, he was faithful as a church member. He was a straight-A student in high school and college. He had been married and had two children of his own. He coached, he had been married and had a child of his own. He coached Little League Baseball, was a choir director at his church. He never used illegal drugs and never had a drink of alcohol. He was considered clean-cut, an all-American boy. Everyone seemed to like him, and he often volunteered in numerous civil, civic community functions. He had a well-paying career and was considered well-to-do and financially well-off in society. But from the age of 13 years old, this boy sexually molested little boys. He never victimized a stranger. All of his victims were friends. I know this child molester very well. 
because he is me, the person writes. Victims are actually more vulnerable to the people we know than they are to strangers, Mike Stone writes. Victims are actually more vulnerable to the people we know, to the people we know than strangers exactly because they are people we know. 93% of juvenile sex assault victims know their attacker. 93% of juvenile sexual assault victims know their attacker. Predators are from every uh, age range, every gender, every race, every social class, every economic status, every religion. And predators are often trusted, well-liked, respected people in their communities, and respected family friends. Abusers are usually well-known. Second principle, abusers want what they want. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Amnon is obsessing over his lust, and when it says that he loves her, it's clear that he doesn't love her, but that he is lusting over her. Over her. Amnon is a biblical picture of Gollum from the Lord of the Rings series who has gone diabolical. We wants it. We needs it. We must have it. It is consuming him. The text says that he is so tormented that he made himself ill. So tormented that he made himself ill. He did it to himself. He made himself ill because of his sister. Yes, sin can and does make people sick. Yes, temptation can and does make people sick. Yes, lust can and does make people sick. It can consume them, distort them, distort us, and deceive us. And the physical ailment that Amnon was dealing with was not a medical problem. Though it had strong medical symptoms, it was a spiritual problem. Scripture is very clear about the connection, how our sin actually affects our health. It's why in James chapter 5, when it's called the elders are called to pray for people, it is done in the context of confession and confessing sin. Abusers want what they want. Principle number three, abusers will do anything to satisfy their lust. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. By the way, if you're reading through 2 Samuel, Jonadab is, the, is very subtle. He is by far the most wicked character in the entire book. David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He had craft, he had wisdom without discretion and without morals. And he said to Amnon, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, see you say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon plans and he schemes with another person, by the way, to do what he needs to do to get what he wants. And he does it despite the fact that there are boundaries and there are policies in place preventing abuse. Rape was forbidden in Israel. Incest was forbidden. The consequence was capital punishment. Everybody knew it, everybody was trained in it, and it did not matter. The Word of God bluntly acknowledges that people who are in positions of power, that every one of us has a natural bent and inclination to use our power for our own sinful ends. And the powerful 
can easily target those with little power, whether physically, emotionally, spiritually, politically, or in any other way. They can easily target those with little power for their own ends to satisfy their lust. They will do anything to do so. Number four, abusers deceive the would-be protectors. So Amnon lay down and he pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Amnon realizes that it's going to be very difficult to get, to, create, to get Tamar alone without creating suspicion. So he schemes in order to deceive King David and King David's household so that there would be a reason for Tamar to be with Amnon. And so Tamar... Amnon gets an authorized edict, an authorized instruction in order to provide cover for his abuse. He deceives David, a would-be protector. He deceives Absalom's house and Tamar's house, who also would be would-be protectors. He deceives the rest of the royal household. Abusers are master manipulators. They deceive and they disarm to reduce suspicion. They do so that they can abuse trust without detection. One abuser wrote this, I consider church people easy to fool. They have a trust that naturally comes from being Christians. They tend to be better folks all around. And they seem to want to believe in the good in people. Because of that, you can easily convince with or without words. It's a confession from a serial molester who was a pastor at multiple churches. Absalom abusers deceive their protectors. They also deceive their victims. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. Is that the deception that he has is that he was sick, allows him to lure Tamar to his room and to his bed. The fact that she has to cook for him provides the cover of time to the royal household. Tamar should be in his room for a long period of time. She should be with him closely and feeding him personally. But the text says in verse 9 that she took the pan and emptied it before him, but he refused to eat. Why? So that he could lure her closer to him to aid her sick brother. And Tamar knows nothing. She is deceived at what is going on. She is there simply comforting her sick brother. Today, the term that's used for this type of behavior is called grooming. Not only the deception, but that abusers and predators is that they groom their victims They groom both the would-be protectors, the parents and the guardians, and they groom the children. How they do it? They work to lower the defenses by developing a veneer of trust and a nurturing relationship. For kids, one woman reported, reported it this way, her experience. She said her swim coach found out that she liked frogs. So after swim, co- after swim practice one day, her coach told her that he found a frog behind the bleachers. She excitedly came with him to this isolated place, and the coach abused her there. Children are so vulnerable. Any little bit of personal knowledge can be turned into devastating weapons against the child. 
And so there Tamar is utterly alone. Abusers groom their victims. They also groom the adults. How they groom the adults and the protectors is they set up adults to feel as if they are in the abuser's debt and that they are trustworthy. They give them rides. They help them with school. They babysit for them. They give them gifts. They tell them, hey, we've got a special relationship. Abusers also use their position to disarm. Their position as a pastor, as a teacher, as a coach, as a music instructor, as a youth worker. They use their position to build trust and to disarm. For those of you here who are children and you're listening to this today, there is something that you need to do. And what you need to do is you need to say no. That if somebody is touching you, if someone is talking to you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable or makes you feel weird, you need to tell somebody. And even if that person is someone that you love and you respect and you, you appreciate their friendship, you need to tell somebody and tell them, say, no, this makes me feel uncomfortable. And you tell a parent, tell me, tell another leader, and I promise you, you will not get in trouble. You will not be embarrassed. You will not be shamed for the things that you said. And let me also tell you, it is not your fault. And you need to state that and to say no, because abusers deceive their victims. Not only that, but after they deceive their victims, abusers isolate their victims. Look at what Amnon does. He said, send everyone out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Everyone is sent out of, the, out, of the, out of his suite of rooms. He's too sick for others to be around. Tamar is lured into the bedroom chamber of his royal suite. Other people are now rooms away from them. And it is there that he has isolated their victims. He has isolated Tamar. Here at Cornerstone, one of our chief strategies in preventing child abuse is preventing any situation where a person would be isolated. We promote too deep leadership, that there should never be a one-on-one -on -one conversation between an adult and a minor. If there is a need for a, conversation, a, a confidential conversation, it is done in a public place where it is viewable by other adults. If one adult is meeting with several youth, it is done so in a publicly visible location and not done privately. Also, at Cornerstone, we have changed all of our offices, office doors and all of our classroom doors to have windows in them so that anybody can see in them at any time. And particularly as I've been spending a lot of time reflecting on this issue this past week, I'm also directing our church staff not only to review our child protection policy, which I think is pretty good, but moreover, to review our practice of it here at Cornerstone and how well we're doing with that. If anyone would like a copy of our child protection policy, it is available in all of our nurseries. Um, you can also email the church office, and I would love to get your feedback from that. Just so that you know, everyone that is working has any contact with our youth or our children, has a background check, reviews and signs our child protection policy. And I would just urge you that for those of you who are working with children, which is well over... 80 adults in our church, well over 90 adults with our church. We need, we as a church, collectively, we need you and we need your help in this. I know that you hear about this all the time. You hear about it in your workplace. You're forced to get annual review and child protection planning in your workplace. You get it in your soccer clubs. You get it all over the place. We need you to help us with this for three reasons. 
is that we need you to help implement our practices and make sure that they are upheld, first and foremost, for the protection of the children and the children that are under our care, first and foremost. Number two, we need it because we need you to work with us and to, and to be actively involved in continually acting, of acting, asking about child protection because there needs to be a visible show of force. There needs to be a visible awareness and a visible warning to would-be perpetrators that child and youth safety is taken ser seriously and there is no opportunity for abuse. And the third reason is also is finally protection for yourself. But there needs to be a visible show of force because what predators do is that predators test the boundaries to see if anyone stops them. Now let's talk about how awkward this is. 93% of child sex victims know their perpetrator. They know them. So it goes to follow that if there is someone that is, that is at risk, most likely, if there is a perpetrator, most likely you would know that person. And so what that means is that if you are aware of a, someone not following our child protection policy or they're doing something a little bit different, you can say, ah, you know what, I, yeah, I, I know them, I know that person, I trust that person, I'm sure they would never do anything like that. Uh, that's just going to be so awkward for me to say something, I'm just not going to say anything. And what predators do is that they test the boundaries to see if anyone stops them. Now, does that mean that anyone who's made a violation of our policy is a sexual predator? No, Right? I mean, people make mistakes, we get careless, what have you, right? Of course not. But at the very same time, that laxness is the thing that predators seize on to test the boundaries to see if anyone will stop them. And that is what is needed from the church body as a whole, not just from other pastors walking around, other children's ministry directors walking around, but what is needed from the church body is for continual conversation about that. And I promise you that if you are asking about that, our church leadership, our staff, our people who are key leaders will love to have somebody else asking that question. We'll love for you to be doing that so that there is a, 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 a constant awareness that there is no room and no opportunity for abuse and so that when, when the predators test the boundary, that that boundary is upheld. And we need you as the body to do that. Because abusers isolate and deceive their victims, and they deceive the would-be protectors. Number seven, abusers violently exploit the victim. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Abusers violently exploit their victim. He overpowers her despite her protests. Despite her reasoning, don't do this. It is wrong. It is against Israel. The consequences would be horrific for me and for you. Don't worry. Hey, I'll even marry you, whether as a cry of desperation. But he would not listen to her, and he violently violates her. Number eight, abusers treat their victims as disposable. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. That his lust, once gratified, turned to hatred. 
is that he is acting with callous arrogance. And Amnon wanted what he wanted, took it without regard for her, and then he treats her as a piece of trash to discard. She is a disposable object to be exploited. And he says to her, get up and go. I want nothing to do with you. There is hatred in my soul for you. And abusers confuse and terrify their victims with lies. They say things like, you are worthless. You know, God, God could never love someone like you, but I do. You need me. Who's going to do for you what I do for you? And they treat their victims as disposable. Some abusers even threaten, their, threaten to harm the child or to harm the, the child's family members if they do tell. They treat their victim as disposable. Not only that, but abusers minimize their actions. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him. And he said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. And she is thrown out. And Amnon instructs the doorman to lock her out and to take her away as if nothing at all wrong has been done to her. And he throws her out with the door bolted behind her, even though she is a princess of King David and a princess of Israel, and she is thrown out. Abusers lie and convince children that they're responsible for the abuse. This is, this is all your fault. You have sinned. God, God and your parents won't love you anymore if they find out what you did, even though they did nothing. Abusers minimize their actions. And in all of this, abusers absolutely devastate their victims. Verse 18. Now, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, like a piece of trash. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head, and she went away, crying aloud as she went. She is traumatized and devastated, and the trauma affects her for the rest of her life. The abuse was dehumanizing communicated to her that she was completely and utterly disposable. And the subsequent inaction that we will see by those who would protect her only reinforced, reinforced her worthlessness. And Tamar never recovered from her abuse. And the text will tell us in a couple moments that Tamar lived as a desolate woman the rest of her days. Her abuse absolutely devastated her. There are several things about the, victim, about the abusers. But let's take a little bit more, look more at what happens to the victims and their, and their trauma and tragedy. Not only do abusers devastate their victims, but victims are silenced, both by their abuser and by their would-be protectors. And her brother, when he sees, when Absalom sees her having torn off her garment and putting ashes on her, her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not, take, do not take this to heart. Do you hear what he's doing to her? So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Absalom should have been her advocate. And what does he say? Hold your peace. Be quiet. Don't tell anyone. 
He's your brother. Don't take this to heart. We're just going to have you live in my house. We're not going to mention anything. We're not, we're not going to bring it. We're not going to make any other aware of this. Quickly, stop your crying. Stop your ashes. Get inside my house. We're just going to silence this whole thing. Ellie Wazell, the Holocaust survivor who recently passed away, that many of you know, know of him well, wrote, Neutrality helps the oppressor and never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor never the tormented. And so too today. There is significant, we just need to understand that insurance providers and some law firms have a vested interest in preventing future abuse and keeping quiet about past abuse. This is also why when issues of past abuse arise, insurance companies and some law firms encourage churches to keep quiet and to limit any sort of investigation. Example, when the leaders of a church in Vienna, Virginia, decided to publicly acknowledge their failures in responding to reports of sexual abuse by a youth minister and to apologize to the survivors, they were admonished by their insurance company to keep quiet, is what they were specifically told. But a plaintiff's attorney who has frequently sued churches for negligent handling of child abuse cases gives this advice to churches. He says, Doing the smart thing and doing the right thing is the same thing. But there is enormous pressure on the would-be protectors to be silent and to encourage silence. There is enormous pressure on the victims to remain silent. I read, it is important to remember that although some children may disclose as a result of a personal safety program, many children will never voluntarily disclose abuse. This is because child abuse, particularly sexual abuse, is engulfed in secrecy. And the victim may fear repercussions for disclosing abuse. It is important to remember that many victims love their offender and count on their parent or other perpetrator for food, clothing, shelter, and other basic needs. As bad as things may be, a child may fear that another environment may be worse. There's pressure on the victims to remain silent. Number 12, victims are often left without justice. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, but nothing was done. Absalom does not seek justice for his sister. Instead, what Absalom subsequently does is two years later, he uses his hatred of of Amnon, he uses his hatred as an opportunity to usurp the throne and displace his father David, and he uses Tamar's abuse as the opportunity for his own personal gain. And she lives in his house. David is very angry, but he does nothing. He ignores the law. David ignores his role as the king of Israel in upholding the law. He does not punish his son. He does not require his son to make restitution to Tamar. Why? Who knows? Perhaps David felt that because of his own sin, he couldn't address the sin of his son. Perhaps David felt that since God had forgiven him, that he just needed to let this slide. But David does not do what he knew he should have done, and he does not do what he should have done in this situation. Unfortunately, too many Christians and churches aren't different. Too many Christians and churches are far more concerned about limiting liability and exposure than concern for the victim and the utter devastation that has occurred in their, in their life. Krista Brown wrote a little book called This Little Light. 
And she recounts her pastor's words to her when she courageously disclosed her abuse at the hands of another pastor on staff. And the pastor says to her, it'll be better if you don't tell anyone else about this. You just need to leave this in God's hand. And that is a completely and utterly indefensible response from someone who is charged to be a shepherd of God's flock and to protect the weak and vulnerable who are under his charge. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who stood up against the abuses of the Holocaust in Germany and subsequently was killed for it, wrote, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Victims are often left without justice. Number 13. Victims are often, are too often, left alone in their tears. Tells us that Absalom lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Text tells us that Tamar ripped off the cloak, the arms of her dress that distinguished that she was a princess of the king, put ashes on her head, but Tamar was left alone in Absalom's house, and there was no one to weep with her and no one to mourn with her. The text goes on to describe in the end of chapter 13, beginning of chapter 14, how Absalom plots the murder of his brother, of his brother Amnon two years later, and when Amnon is murdered... David and his whole household mourns the death of the abuser Absalom. But David and his household do not join Tamar in the ashes of her mourning to lament the evil that was done to her. She is left utterly alone in her tears. And too often, victims of abuse carry the shame, carry the wounds all alone. And they bury those wounds deep within their soul, trying to get by, trying to make some sort of sense how to move forward from the devastation that that has occurred in their life and that nobody else has any knowledge with. Victims are often left alone in their tears. Well, how do we respond to this? Scripture is actually quite clear. First thing to know is that God is not indifferent to abuse. Ecclesiastes, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And not only is God not indifferent, but God hears the cry of the oppressed. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man, who is of the earth, may strike terror no more. God hears the cry of the oppressed, and God calls us, his people, to use our power for the vulnerable, to use our power to be advocates for the victim. Psalm 82, God cries out to the people of God. He says to them, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak. And to the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Who is to do that? The people of God. 
You and me are the ones that God has appointed to rescue the weak and the needy, to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Is that you are the means that God has used, yes, in his sovereign power, but to be advocates for the victims. Isaiah 58, 6. He says again that the people of God were being very religious. They were going to church. They were doing their Bible studies. They were fasting. They were doing all their religious rituals. Yet God is disgusted with it. And he says to them, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? Is this not the fast that I choose? Is this not the religious practice that I want to be seen in your life as the people of God? You who have experienced God's grace. You who have experienced God's mercy. You, now this side of the cross, who have experienced God being an advocate for you, being your redeemer through sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for us so that we would be set free from oppression to sin, death, and the devil so that we could have life and life abundantly and life eternally. You, we, who have experienced the grace and mercy of God, he charges that we would act for others in the way that God has acted for us. That we, who have been set free, that we who now have an eternal advocate before the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us day and night, for you. That we, that you, that me, that we would do that on behalf of the victims and on behalf of those who are oppressed. How do you do that? A couple simple things. One, if you are aware of any violations of our church protection policy, let any of our staff know. Let any of our leaders know. Two, if you are informed of any sort of sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, report it to the police. And be an advocate for the oppressed. God calls us to use our power for the weak and vulnerable and for the voiceless. Number four, God heals the broken through Jesus Christ. Obviously, what I've been saying this morning has focused on abuse and the nature of abusers and the environment that cultivates abuse and environments that prevent abuse. I haven't focused much on how the gospel brings healing to victims, how the gospel works to restore lives are shattered, lives that are shattered, and it, it does. And so I share this verse here not as a trite saying, but I share it because it's true. And though it's simple to say, it is immensely profound. And that for those of you here who are victims of abuse, those of you here who maybe have abused, the gospel brings healing to your hurt. It brings healing to the deep wounds, maybe wounds that you have carried with you for year after year, decade after decade, that nobody else has known about. And you felt that maybe just over time those things would go away, and you found that they haven't. The gospel can heal you and begin to bring healing in your life. And so when Paul writes in Romans, he says it not simply but very profoundly, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is not to say that any sort of abuse is justifiable. But it is to say that abuse is abhorrent, and there is redemption through Jesus Christ. And both of those are true. 
And we as a church, we would love to help you journey on a pathway to healing. We've got two counselors that come down on Friday who do very well at this. And I would encourage you to seek healing and to know that, yes, maybe it doesn't make sense to you right now, but to know that, yes, it does come through Jesus Christ. And there are people who will love you and who will journey with you. Finally, God will bring an end to abuse, and he will make all things new. That the day is coming when abuse will be no more. When the pain and the hurt and the shame of abuse will be no more. And the day is coming when Jesus Christ will turn, return and usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And there will be justice. And there will be redemption. And there will be complete and perfect healing. And Revelation describes it this way. Behold, on that day the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning. Like ashes put on their head like Tamar. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And may God speed that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are some here who those words are terrifying. But Lord, you are our Heavenly Father. You are the source of all love, all goodness, all grace, all truth, all redemption, all healing. And so, Father, we come before you. And we pray for your spirit to work. Father, we pray for your spirit to work in the lives of victims, in the lives of victims in this church. For those who have things that they have never uttered, Father, we pray for your spirit to bring healing in ways that only you can do. Father, you are the one who hears the cry of the oppressed, who hears the cry of the abused. And you are not indifferent, but Lord, you groan with us. And in you there is healing. In you there is redemption. And Father, we pray that you would bring that about. And though it may not be perfect in this lifetime, Lord, we pray that your spirit would bring healing to people here who hurt, who are still devastated. And Father, we pray that you would work in our church, Father, that you would protect this body. Father, that you would protect us individually. Lord, that you would protect us as families. Lord, that you would protect us as a church body that you would protect us from the evil one, that you would protect us from evildoers, Lord, that you would protect us so that this small twig of your church would indeed be made a pure and spotless bride because of the working of your Holy Spirit bringing transformation in this place. Father, we need your spirit to do that. 
Lord, we ask that you would protect us. Lord, we ask that you would bring redemption and healing to those who are hurting. Father, we ask that you would bring redemption and healing and transformation to those who have abused and who are perpetrators. Father, would your grace and your spirit working in them move them to confess and to repent and to bring restitution. Father, would they find their hope and their healing in you? Lord, we live in a broken and fallen world. We are a broken and fallen people and we dwell among a people of unclean lips and unclean hearts. Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But Lord, we ask that your spirit would stop that and intervene. Lord, we pray that you would so work in Cornerstone that not only would it be a radiant bride, but Lord, that your righteousness would be seen, that victims would have advocates, that your righteousness would go forth and that it would be a beautiful thing and that your glory would radiate from this place because we, your people, are living as your people. And that the truths that we believe are changing our lives and being lived out in our deeds. Father, we need you to do that. And we ask that by your spirit, you would move us so that we would not simply be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. And that through that, your name would be glorified and your people protected and the broken redeemed. In Jesus' name, who is our brother, our Savior, and our Redeemer, we pray. Amen.